This week sees the Darwin Festival, hosted at the University of Cambridge to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species and the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth. Each day, the naked scientists are producing a Darwin Daily, a recap of the exhibition where we meet the attendees, organisers and speakers. I'm Diana O'Carroll. First off, Chris Smith met up with Miranda Gompertz, director of the Darwin Festival. So tell us, Miranda, what were you hoping this would be, this Darwin Festival? I was hoping this Darwin Festival would be a monumental record of what's happened before, the history, the understanding, the knowledge, the depth of knowledge and the the future of understanding in terms of science, in terms of humanity and a, a massive outreach, a mechanism to deliver this information to a very broad public. It's quite a monumental year because it's the 800th anniversary of Cambridge University. It's 200 years since Charles Darwin was born, 150 years since he published his famous book On the Origin of Species. That's our digit preference for you, but the point is it is an important year for Cambridge. It's an incredibly important year for Cambridge, and it's remarkable that these three anniversaries managed to coincide in this year. So how are you trying to exploit that with this festival? With this festival, well, it's been an interesting process because in some respects the 800th and Darwin have had to compete. In my mind, the most important person this year has to be Darwin. What he delivered to the world at large in so many respects has a far greater reach than the university itself. I know I'll be shot down many times for having said that, but I feel that very strongly. It's okay. the rights to this piece of audio will be available for ransom at the back. (laughs) But first of all, tell me a bit about who you've actually brought to this festival. Who's going to be here talking? The speakers have been gathered across the world. Their selection was made some time ago. Letters were written, I think, as far back as 2000, actually. The responses were overwhelmingly positive, and the result is that we had to find a mechanism to give everybody the limelight for a period of time that was satisfactory. So we ended up with the process of two short talks in the morning, followed by these panel discussions where very eminent people only get eight minutes to speak, and then the opportunity for the audience to ask their own question. And our speakers cover the whole spectrum of academic disciplines. We have astronomers, we have historians, we have artists and performers, as well as scientists and geologists. And uh, it's really this breadth of people of understanding that makes this festival so special. Miranda Gompertz, director of the Darwin Festival, and she was speaking to Chris Smith. Now, this event is not without ambition. And among some of the biggest topics, speakers address questions such as whether there can be theology after Darwin, Is Darwinism incompatible with purpose? And what might be Darwin's challenge to theological anthropology? But let's go back one step and ask whether a good scientist can be religious. Here's Richard Dawkins' view. There are some good scientists who are religious, but they only do it by keeping their two halves of their mind separate. There are plenty of good scientists who say they're religious, but when you ask them, it turns out that they're only religious in the Einsteinian sense of some kind of pantheistic belief in the or, or reverence for the, um, the deep mysteries at the root of existence. That's not religion. Uh, or if it is, I'm religious. But there are just one or two genuinely religious people who actually believe in virgin birth, rising from the dead, walking on water, water into wine. Scientists who believe that are either bad scientists or they keep their two halves of their mind completely separate. I don't know how they do it. Uh, it's certainly true that 
Einstein and many others are motivated by their reverence for um, the deep problems of existence. And that's, that's fine. Anybody who's motivated by a, a belief in a, a supernatural being who walks on water, as I said before, cannot be a good scientist or can only be a, a very divided scientist. Richard Dawkins of Oxford University. And from religious scientists, we return to the gathering of Hajj-like proportions and all the people who made their own pilgrimage to the Darwin Festival. Chris Smith met some of them. I'm Robert Foley and I'm Professor of Human Evolution here at Cambridge. What are you hoping to get out of the Darwin Festival? A celebration of all things that Darwin led us to think. I mean, he has been probably more influential in science than any other scientist, but it goes so far beyond that. So, The Newton of the world of biology? Definitely the Newton of biology, and probably head and shoulders above any other biologist, yes. I'm Kristen Hawkes. I'm a professor of anthropology from the University of Utah. So what do you think of the Darwin Festival so far? I'm astonished. It's amazing. What a carnival of things. Just so many dimensions. Way too many things going on. It's rich and wonderful, and it's only barely started. You should try being the person who's got to try and record it all. <laughs> what do you think Darwin's done for biology? Everything, all of modern biology. What would it be without Darwin? Although it's an interesting question to ask. What would modern biology be like if you took Darwin away? What do you think? What do you think? I can't imagine that it would be anything like what it is. Matthias Havner. Where are you from? I'm from Holland. Okay, so obviously you've come for the Darwin Festival, but uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, up to now it has been really good. Uh, this is my second session. This morning there was quite a good session with uh, Richard Dawkins, which was really enjoyable. Today uh, the second session slightly more mixed. There have been, been some uh, talks which were really direct to the general audience and some talks which are a lot more technical. And what are you hoping to take away from this week? I'm hoping to take away some key questions which I still have, either by listening to the speakers or maybe in discussion with some of people from the audience as well. One question which I have comes from like a tiny genome to a, like a more comprehensive genome. So what we witness today if we do like more bioinformatics type studies, we can really see how species can adapt to an environment, how certain genes can adapt to an environment. But what we don't see is how a small genome actually acquires genes over time. I don't think there's, there have been any like, real studies done on that. So and where a, entirely new genes come from? Come from, yes, exactly. And of, of, of course there are some theories on it. Like One of the theories is by gene duplication within the genome and other theories by by transfer through viruses. However, as far as I understand it, those genes are usually non-functional. So to me, I can't quite see where novel functional genes come from. So that's a question which I have. And I'm sure there has, there's an answer for it. So, What's your name? I'm Gary Kortz. Where from? I'm from Ohio in the United States. What brings you to this Darwin Festival? I'm a retired uh, biology teacher, and uh, Darwin is my intellectual hero. Wow. I'm just glad to be here. You struggle with Darwin in the U.S. a little bit. I don't mean you personally, but obviously people have had a few problems. People do. Uh, recent uh, surveys have shown that uh, fully about 60% of uh, the American populace uh, doesn't accept evolution. Now, as a teacher through the years at the high school and uh, university level, I never had much of a problem. I did have some students who were skeptical, but nonetheless, uh, when I presented it in a non-threatening way, 
many of them changed their minds, said, I don't really see what the fuss is all about. Do you see religion and Darwin sitting side by side, or do you just see Darwin as not actually having a problem with religion and vice versa? I don't see a Darwinism having any problem with religion. What are you hoping to get out of the festival this week? What I'm hoping to get out of it is uh, just simply a better understanding of uh, Darwin, his life and his times, and uh, actually uh, walking in his footsteps here at Cambridge. Biology teacher Gary Courts, amongst others, talking to Chris Smith. At the festival today, I also met up with one of the speakers, Jim Mallett of University College London. He works on Heliconius butterflies, native to the Americas. Amongst these butterflies, you get occasional explosions in the numbers of new originating species, known as speciation. I asked Jim what might cause these explosions. Once you know the ecology of your beasts, the theories are reasonably obvious. So there's theories that are about the external environment, the abiotic, you know, physical environment. And then there's theories about the biotic environment, interactions with plants and animals, and the butterflies, of course, feed as caterpillars. They feed on particular plants. And my heliconius butterflies feed on passion flowers, which are a very diverse group of uh, plants. And there's a lot of evidence of conflict between the plants and the animals. The plants to try and escape the animals and develop new methods of avoiding them, the animals to overcome those defences and so on. And another thing that we have in Heliconius butterflies is that they also copy each other. So different species copy each other. And by copying I do not mean they deliberately, you know, look alike. They actually evolve changes, genetic changes, which cause convergence in colour pattern. So we call it copying for short, or mimicry. So the mimicry is a fantastic ecological effect in these butterflies, which is definitely very strongly selected. We've estimated some of the selection pressures, you know, and if you're, for instance, if you have the wrong colour pattern, your lifespan is reduced by up to 50%. It's a major problem. Coming back to Darwin, how far do you think he went in terms of looking at these factors like mimicry and things that the butterflies, for example, would feed on? How far did he explore those? Well, obviously he couldn't do everything, and mimicry was one thing that he didn't do. However, it was discovered in 1862 and interpreted with Darwin in 1859 by a guy called Henry Walter Bates, who had travelled on the Amazon. He not only noticed that different species copied each other in a particular area, but also that the same species and the same pair of species would change from region to region and copy each other again and again. So there's so much parallel evolution, it could not really be explained by anything other than this copying. And it was an absolutely surefire explanation that mimicry occurred, even though they never actually did the experimental work to show that it was true. Jim Mallett from the Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment at the University College London. And on the subject of similarities are genetic differences. Just what do mutational changes do to separate out species so close as chimps and humans? Chris Smith spoke to David Stern. I take very closely related fly species and we try to find the genes that make those species look different and make them behave differently from one another. And so what this tells me is that when you start looking for the mutations that cause the difference, say, between a human and a chimpanzee, first of all, there are going to be these privileged genes 
that contribute to particular aspects of the appearance or the behavior of humans and chimps. But the second thing is that it's probably required a vast number of mutations. We shouldn't be thinking about this as a small number of mutational changes to generate the difference between us and chimpanzees. But in real terms, they are quite small numbers, aren't they? Because if you look at how similar we are genetically to a chimp, we're really, really close in evolutionary terms. Right. So that's where you have to be a little careful with the maths and multiply everything out. The human genome and the chimpanzee genome, on average, are about 99% identical. And then you have to ask the question, well, how many base pairs are there? And of course, there are about 3 billion base pairs in each genome. And we differ at about 1% of those. So that's 3 times 10 to 7, 30 million differences, potentially. So it is actually quite a lot of differences. It, 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 when you add them all up, it turns out there are quite a few. So now the problem is, we don't expect that all 30 million are important. Maybe 1% of those are important. We, we, we actually, we don't know what percentage. So we have at least 300,000 changes we're trying to track down to make the difference between human and chimp. I think that's quite a conservative estimate. So I would say it's going to be a hard problem. And what makes it hard is not simply the vast number of mutational changes that make the difference, but the size of the effect of each mutation. Our current belief is that each mutation on its own has quite a small effect on the difference between humans and chimps. And of course, the smaller the effect, the harder it is to study. And of course, this is why we studied these problems in fruit flies, because we can easily generate a million organisms in a couple of weeks, and we can cross the species, we can do the genetics. David Stern, evolutionary biologist at the University of Princeton, speaking to Chris Smith. That's it for Monday's Roundup at the Darwin Festival. If you have anything Darwinian you'd like to discuss, then why not visit our forum? You can find that at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. But we'll be back tomorrow with another summary of the day's events.